Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a vascular surgeon explains how abdominal aortic aneurysms can be repaired in a minimally invasive fashion. Putting a stent inside the blood vessel that's weak, and that stent would actually seal to the blood vessel above and below the weak area. An emergency physician tells about his recent mission to Haiti. You know, without the proper sanitation, you're going to see different diseases in Haiti than what you'd see in the United States. Waterborne diarrheal illnesses are common, even mosquito-borne illnesses, and as well these parasitic worm infections. And an infectious disease expert explains what's most important to know about Lyme disease. If you see that bullseye rash in the summertime, early, uh, late spring, or uh, early fall where the ticks are still active, that in and of itself is diagnostic. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a recent mission trip to Haiti. Then we'll focus on Lyme disease. But first, we'll explore minimally invasive methods of repairing abdominal aortic aneurysms. When the wall of a blood vessel weakens, a balloon-like dilation called an aneurysm sometimes develops. This happens most often in, in the abdominal aorta, the largest blood vessel in the body. If this balloon ruptures, it's often deadly. Here to talk about options for treating these aneurysms is Dr. Michael Costanza, a professor of surgery in the Division of Vascular Surgery. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, start with how common abdominal aortic aneurysms are. Well, abdominal aortic aneurysms are the 10th leading cause of death for older men. And so uh, in this country, about 30,000 people a year actually die from an abdominal aortic aneurysm. And it may be more, it's just that they may not be diagnosed before people die. Before so it's die. a cause of sudden death. Um, you said men. Is it more common in men? It's definitely more common in men than women. Usually it's about a three or four to one ratio from men to women. We don't really understand why that is. But as women are living longer, and they do li usually live longer than men, we are seeing more aneurysms get diagnosed in women, especially in the elderly group of women. So how would you know if you have an aneurysm? Well, sometimes you wouldn't know at all, and, and that's why it's very important to know if you're at risk for aneurysms, because currently, um, if you are at risk, uh, Medicare offers a free screening for aneurysms in people who are in the risk categories, and those would be people who are 65 to 75 years old who either have a family history of aneurysms or are a man who has ever smoked in their life, and those uh, groups would be eligible for a free screening by uh, Medicare, which basically just involves an ultrasound. And with an ultrasound, it's a non-invasive painless test, and they can detect if you have an aneurysm or not. Okay. What, uh, how do these aneurysms develop? Are they just like a natural process, or is there like a, an underlying disease that causes an yeah, aneurysm? Yeah, we wish we knew, because if we did know, then we could really identify people more at risk. But we think that it's a genetic predisposition to get them, uh, but they don't happen until much later in life. And then there is an environmental factor as well. In other words, 
people who are predisposed to get them, the people in that group that smoke uh, seem to get them more readily than people in that group that don't smoke. So you probably inherit something to get them and then you add another couple factors and then people get aneurysms. But it's still unclear exactly why some people get them and some people don't, even in the same family. Do, um, is there anything being done in terms of like prevention? If you have a history of this in your family, sure you can get screened, but is there something you can do to like prevent or strengthen the vessel or somehow? Yeah, we've done lots of studies on that and nothing has ever shown that it will make an aneurysm either not form or go away. The big, the best thing that people can do is, uh, if they do smoke to stop smoking or if they don't smoke, never, never start because that does seem to facilitate aneurysm growth. So you as a vascular surgeon, what do you do um, to determine what the best treatment is for a particular patient? So we look at, uh, obviously we look at the whole patient, but in terms of aneurysms, we look at specifically at the size of the aneurysm. And that really determines when we would recommend treatment versus just surveillance imaging or watching the patient. As the aneurysms get bigger, the stress on the wall of the artery increases. And when it increases too high, it would obviously would break. So we would like to repair all aneurysms before it gets to that breaking point. And right now, based on studies, we use uh, five and a half centimeters as the usual cutoff point where we would recommend fixing the aneurysm because at that point the risk starts to go up and it actually exceeds the risk of having a surgical repair. So if you're a person who has a five centimeter um, aneurysm and you're not recommended for treatment right away, doesn't that make it sort of nervous to go on living, knowing that this thing is in there? Yeah, people have looked at that, uh, the psychological impact of that. Um, when, when we do uh, choose to not intervene right away, we do get a screening exam or another uh, imaging exam at least in six months. So we'll know if it grows. And, and generally, aneurysms grow less than 10% in a year. So if you were at five centimeters and you did it in six months, the most it would be expected to grow is about two millimeters, and you'd still be below the cutoff. So it takes some reassurance. And some patients really can't handle that, but um, but uh, that's the way we go about it. Um, is there any advice you give someone in that situation for, like, do they need to, like, not have stress in their life? or do, is there, Are there things they can do to sort of... Um, yeah, not accelerate it. they always ask about that, and you would think that would be the case. But for a blood vessel, when you think about it, the blood vessel has to withstand the pressure of every heartbeat, every, you know, every moment you're alive. So it's not like a hernia when you strain, it puts more pressure. The blood pressure is a uh, blood vessel is under that pressure all the time. So it's really your activity really doesn't affect it at all. So you can still play basketball or do yeah, whatever, absolutely. whatever your normal stuff is. Right. Okay. Well, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Michael Costanza. He's an expert in vascular surgery, and we're discussing minimally invasive treatment options for abdominal aortic aneurysms. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about, the basic treatment options when someone has an aneurysm. And you've explained that not everyone needs to have it repaired right away, depending on the size and other factors. But let's say somebody does need a repair. Um, what sorts of options do they have? Right. Well, we've been repairing aneurysms for about the last 50 or 60 years. And when we first started repairing aneurysms, we would actually go inside the belly to the aorta, which is the main blood vessel in the body. And we would actually clamp the main blood vessel above and below the weak area and then actually remove the aneurysm part and replace it with an artificial blood vessel that's actually sewn to the the normal Mm -hmm. blood vessel. And that is obviously a very invasive procedure, uh, but 
it worked very, very well. And then in the late 90s, uh, they developed a new technique of putting a stent inside the blood vessel that's weak. And that stent would actually seal to the blood vessel above and below the weak area. And we call that an endovascular aneurysm repair. And uh, since that time, that has become the predominant way of fixing aneurysms because it's much less invasive and uh, the patients recover very, very quickly. And it's, it turns out to be very, very effective at treating the aneurysm. So do you, is open surgery still sometimes used? Open surgery is still used. It's a much smaller percentage of patients, but there are patients where the stents that are manufactured will not fit into the seal zone. And in those cases, the only option then would be open surgery. But that's a minority of patients um, compared to what it once was. So endovascular repair, that means uh, you're coming from inside the blood vessel? Yeah, that's right. We can usually do these just with a needle puncture in both of the femoral vessels, which are the vessels right up where your leg bends at the hip. Um, and so we go in with a needle, and then through that needle, we're able to pass wires and then the stent itself. Um, and then under x-ray guidance, we uh, deploy the stent so that it seals to the, aneur to the blood vessel above and below the aneurysm. And that excludes the pressure from the weak area and allows that to actually shrink down around the stent and the aneurysm is treated. So there, you don't have to remove the aneurysm tissue or anything. Right, that that's just right. stays right there. It's yeah. reinforced. That's right. It's reinforced. But on the on the other hand, the aneurysm is still there. So if the seal would ever break at any point in time, the aneurysm would still be there to re-expand. And so that's why, one, that we put them in under x-ray guidance so that we see that it's sealed off, and two, that we follow the patients afterwards to make sure that that seal is still intact. And then the patient doesn't have this big scar, right? Right. There's no scars at all. You would never be able to tell. Usually it's just done through needle punctures, and, the, and many patients go home the very next day. So it's really an amazing wow. transformation from what it used to be. Now, these stents, what are they made of? Do they, do they assimilate into the body okay? Or? Yeah, the stents are actually made of a material, the same material that we used to use for the open repairs. They're just mounted on kind of a metal scaffolding that is allowed to expand inside the body, and that's, that friction or that pressure of outward expansion is what keeps the stent in place. But the material itself is the same material we would use for an open repair, so we know that that material is very, very durable durable. How long do they last? Do you, does anyone ever have to come back and have it taken out and replaced? Or? They do occasionally, but it's very, very rare. Um, so, And that's the reason that we do check on them at least once a year to make sure that that material is holding up and that the seal is still intact. If we would detect something on a yearly CAT scan or ultrasound, then we would usually have an endovascular way of repairing it. In other words, we could slide in a reinforcing stent or reinforce an area that became, became weak. Huh, interesting. Now, are all patients um, with all types of aneurysms candidates for this minimally invasive procedure? Or yeah, So to be, a, to be a candidate, and we usually determine it by the CAT scan, uh, you have to have a certain size of normal blood vessel above and below the aneurysm. And so there are patients that uh, do not have that um, anatomy, and they would not be a candidate for the standard repair. And does it matter where in the body the aneurysm is? It does. Um, the majority of aneurysms are in the what we call the infrarenal abdominal aorta, which is the aorta below the kidneys. Um, so it's between your lower breastbone and your belly button. 
Um, as some aneurysms are actually extend all the way up to the kidneys or even above the kidneys, and those are, would be uh, more complex aneurysms that require a different type of stent or an open repair. Now, um, the term fenestrated endograph, can you tell us what that is? So a fenestrated endograft is an endograft that allows you to seal an aneurysm that approaches the level of the kidneys. And that graft has a built-in openings so that the kidney arteries are able to be uh, still get blood flow even though the stent extends up to the kidneys. And these grafts are something that's been uh, developed over the last 10 years, but only have been commercially available for about the last five or six years. And they're actually all custom made based on the CAT scan. And so uh, we actually measure where the kidneys arteries are, how big they are, and what um, what uh, place they are on, on the uh, blood vessel itself. And then they're custom made. And then we put them in uh, and align them with the kidneys so that um, the kidneys themselves are not blocked in any way by the stent, but the stent still is able to seal off the aneurysm. So it's wow. a much more involved procedure, but it's still all done through very minimal access. In other words, still through a needle puncture, and the patients still go home very, very quickly after the surgery. But just for certain patients, the more specialized... Right. Uh, this approach. is a small minority of patients, probably less than 10% of all aneurysm patients. But for those patients, um, it can make a huge difference because otherwise, without these specialized stents, they would be having open repairs. And those open repairs are actually even riskier than the standard open repair because they involve clamping the kidney arteries, which could result in renal failure or then needing dialysis afterwards. Uh -huh. So it's been a huge difference for these patients that otherwise had no choices. Okay. All right. Well, we've been talking about um, when you discover an aneurysm and have time to treat it, but oftentimes people um, learn they have an aneurysm when it ruptures, and then it's an urgent, emergent problem, right? That's right. So, it's a life-threatening problem. If they don't have it repaired, then it's uh, almost 100% chance of, of dying from the aneurysm just for, because of the blood loss. And so in those cases, um, we actually are usually able to fix them with a stent. Um, and we have stents, um, you know, on the shelf ready to be put in for those type of patients. And um, if you get the patient at a soon enough time, then uh, the stent can be a very effective treatment for that otherwise fatal condition. Okay. Now, a person who has an aneurysm and has it repaired, are they liable um, to get another aneurysm? A few uh, of those patients do get other aneurysms. It's about 10 or 15%, but it takes time for them to develop. Aneurysms don't come up overnight. And so even patients that have had an open repair, we still follow them on a regular basis to make sure that they're not developing new aneurysms because about 10 or 15% of them will. So once you do have the repair, they'll still be coming back to see you? Or? Yeah, that's right. Once somebody is identified as having an aneurysm, we continue to follow that patient in the long term. What's um, sort of the outlook um, what are you looking for, and what do you usually find with people who've had repairs? Well, we monitor them for uh, the integrity of the repair itself, and then we also look at the chest for aneurysms, and then some of them will actually develop aneurysms in their legs as well. That's the next common spot. So oh, we really? look at all those places to make sure that they're not developing new ones um, that could be treated. Are the ones in the legs as serious as the ones in the abdomen? Well, the ones in the legs are serious in that they don't usually rupture, but they can form clots within them. And if oh. the clots go down the leg, then it's a, one of the reasons people end up losing their legs. So if they don't know that they have it and they come in with a clot in it, then the chance of them losing their leg is actually quite high. 
Whereas if we detect it in advance and fix it before it has a chance to form clot, then they're almost certainly not going to lose their So life. that's follow-up is very crucial exactly. for this. Great. Well, thank you for all this information. My guest has been vascular surgeon and professor of surgery, Dr. Michael Costanza. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up next, a medical mission to Haiti on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Jim Howe. This is HealthLink on Air. Doctors Brian Kloss and Joseph Capogreco, emergency physicians from Upstate University Hospital, recently returned from a medical mission trip to Haiti. We're happy to have them both here as guests to talk about it. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Let me start with you, Dr. Kloss. Why don't you tell a little bit about what the purpose of this trip was, how it came about? So we just returned from a trip in Haiti uh, with an organization called Health Corps Haiti. It's also known as Medical Student Missions. It's an organization that was founded in 2010 by Dr. William Forge, uh, based on the interest of uh, several medical students in Illinois, where he lives, that wanted to get involved in providing health care in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. Okay. Uh, how many people from upstate or from the Syracuse area went with you? This past trip, we had a total of five people that went with us. Uh, myself, this was actually my third trip to Haiti. And as a professor with the Department of Emergency Medicine, what I wanted to do was uh, find opportunities for the residents to get involved with um, going to different countries to see how healthcare is provided in those different systems. And after having gone twice, now the third trip, I was able to get funding from our department to bring with, uh, in addition to myself, three residents, and one other attending physician. Where in Haiti were you located? We were in uh, basically central Haiti in a town called Verretz, uh in the mountains, um, in a very poor area. Uh, did you see evidence of the 2010 earthquake still existing or run into areas that have maybe been restored since then? Uh, this was my first trip, so I really have nothing to compare it to. However, there was really destruction everywhere as far as uh, houses that were which were half finished or cracked foundations. So really, it was it was everywhere. And so you're still seeing evidence of people being homeless and destroyed buildings even now. Uh, homeless, maybe not in the sense that we would say it here, but people living in corrugated steel shelters and and homes or you know houses built out of uh, mud and and stones and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. How did your group spend your days and your nights in Haiti? So the uh, trip is based on essentially a seven-day um, excursion to Haiti. So it starts on a Sunday and then runs until a Saturday. So the um, first day on of a Sunday is usually the travel day. So 
there's people uh, involved with volunteering with this organization that come from around the country with the central meeting point naturally being Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So ourselves flying in from Syracuse, others flying in from Illinois, others flying in from California, other parts of the country. So on the first day, Sunday, we all arrive at the airport, usually between noon and uh, three or four in the afternoon. And then that first part of the day is spent traveling to Verretz. And again, as uh, Dr. Capogreco said, the uh, Verretz is about uh, 60 kilometers um, north east of uh, Port-au-Prince. So even though it's only 60 kilometers, it takes us about three and a half hours to get there by vehicle. So the first day is sort of a travel day as well. The last day is a travel day. Um, the first day coming is the Monday, and we kind of spend that getting organized. We let the um, administration and doctors at the local hospital in Verrett's know that we're in town, that we're here as well to, you know, uh, do some mobile travel clinics for screening the populations for general health issues. And then uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we spend uh, going to different locations in and around the city of Verrett's providing um, essentially uh, primary care health screenings and uh, seeing and evaluating patients. All right. Now, for when you were taking care of patients, what types of injuries or illnesses did you see most commonly? Let me go to you, Dr. Capogreco. Uh, it was a lot of chronic things like arthritis. Most of, most of the people that will come to our clinics were farmers or sold things in the market. So a lot of wear and tear and injuries like, uh, like arthritis. Everybody has eye problems from the sun and the dust that's rampant. Uh, a lot of skin fungal infections. Uh, and then, you know, UTIs, vaginitis, uh, those type of things as well. High blood pressure was... UTIs for urinary, urinary tract infections. infections uh -huh. um, high blood pressure, I didn't see as much as uh, I'd expected, you know, mm -hmm. and compared to, you know, patients here. Uh, but then again, there's no, ob I didn't see any obesity in, in Haiti. Everybody is working class, uh, thin people for the most part. Mm -hmm. Thin in a healthy way or thin in an emaciated way? Uh, there, there's malnutrition that is, uh, that is rampant. So I would say uh, maybe a little bit of both, but mm -hmm. there is certainly a lot of, you know, decreased nutrition. Did you see any diseases you'd consider highly unusual? With, um, with Haiti, some of the things that are endemic in Haiti that we don't have here in the United States tends to be, uh, it's called soil-transmitted helminthic infections. So these are actually parasitic worm infections that get transmitted through the soil, usually through people's feet, and then the parasitic worm goes through its life cycle inside the human host. So um, worm infections that we tend to see there include ascariasis, hookworm, and something called whipworm. So if you look uh, demographically, what percentage of people in Haiti on average have one of these parasitic worm infections, it's about 25% of the population. And one of the things that we were able to do at this last trip was uh, to provide some deworming of uh, the patient population there. There's a, a simple medication called albendazole, whereas most patients that we'd see, and as well as with the younger children, if they had any complaints of abdominal pain, we were able to give them a single dose of this medicine, albendazole, which would then uh, wipe out that parasitic worm infection for the individual at the time. Um, however, though, in the future, um, how to prevent these worm infections from the people of Haiti, one would have to go through with a massive deworming campaign, essentially treating every patient as if they're the host to the parasitic worm with albendazole to clear them of the infection and then provide the people of Haiti with proper footwear. Um, this is a 
worm that's transmitted uh, through the soil and as well um, around areas around the river. So most of the people that we've seen in Haiti don't have proper footwear or any shoes at all. So by walking around, uh, you know, in the soil, exposes them to these worms. And a lot of the folks um, don't have running water in their own household, so they walk to and from uh, the river. And in Verrett's, one of the things that's nice is in Verrett's, there's actually a natural spring that one of the local residents was able to tap into and provide essentially uh, pipage of that water from the natural spring across the river and um, uh, to the area where the river bed is so that the villagers can come and get that fresh water directly from the spring that's been piped uh, to them across the river. So it serves as an access point. So water, uh, it sounds like water and maybe general sanitation would be a major concern in Haiti? Uh, correct. So when you look at when you travel to developing nations um, in regards to what are the things that can improve the health care of the individuals there the most, it tends to be things that we in the United States take for granted. So in the United States, we all or most of us all have water, uh, naturally running water in our household from the faucet, as well as the means of disposing of wastewater, which is when we flush our toilet. In Haiti, they don't tend to have naturally running water as far as plumbing, bringing fresh water into their residence, and as well don't have the means of uh, you know, easily disposing of their uh, waste um, either. So there are areas where there's latrines, where there's uh, places where people can use the, the uh, toilet to dispose of the uh, fecal matter that way. But as well, you know, without the uh, proper sanitation, you're going to see different diseases in Haiti than what you'd see in the United States. So cholera um, is an example of that, that uh, is a, um, you know, a disease that causes nausea and vomiting and at many times severe dehydration from severe diarrhea. So waterborne diarrheal illnesses are common, as well as uh, even mosquito-borne illnesses and as well these parasitic worm infections. Mm -hmm. The overall classification of many of these diseases, they refer to them as tropical and neglected diseases because um, they occur more in the tropical regions of the world and neglected in the sense that uh, they are not really first world diseases. So from a pharmaceutical uh, standpoint, from a treatment standpoint, uh, they tend to be neglected and only prevalent in these third world nations. Do they receive uh, regular care for these types of typical typical diseases there? In regards to the um, soil transmitted helminthic infections or the parasitic worm infections, they do. What tends to happen is there's uh, deworming campaigns that occur through various um, nonprofit organizations and non-governmental organizations that'll come through. If the population has at least 25% of the folks there infected with the uh, worms, it's recommended that everyone in that vicinity or community receive uh, a dose of albendazole yearly. And then when the population is greater than 40% that is infected with the parasitic worms, it's recommended they go through with a deworming campaign and treat the population there twice a year. How would you describe uh, overall health care as it's delivered in Haiti? Well, in, uh, in Haiti, the healthcare system um, that we've seen um, is uh, almost as if everyone has access to the healthcare, but then the difficulty is, is the uh, cost of it. So in the town of Verrett's where we visit, there is a um, hospital system there, and the patients are able to see the doctor for, I believe it's uh, 60 goods, which is the equivalent of uh, about uh, one U.S. dollar. 
and that uh, covers the cost of the healthcare visit with the physician and as well any necessary laboratory work or any type of medications that might need to be prescribed. But again, now we're dealing with folks that um, their daily income is between one to two US dollars per day, and they need that money to also then pay for uh, food uh, for themselves, for their children. So that one dollar is essentially a day salary to then go to be uh, seen by a physician when they're there. When we go with uh, part of HealthCore Haiti, uh, what we do is we work with the existing HealthCore, I'm um, sorry, the healthcare infrastructure that's there. We um, are approved by the Department of Health in Haiti and Verets as far as being able to come in and provide these healthcare services. And what we do is we create a dossier or paperwork on every patient that we see. And as well, we actually um, pay the physician from Haiti uh, to come and work with us when we're at our mobile clinics. And at our mobile clinics, we do have what's called point of care testing. So we're able to test the blood via a simple finger stick for things such as tuberculosis, HIV, and then as well, if we find these conditions, again, through this population screening, we're able to then refer them from our mobile clinic to the larger hospital system and say we've identified someone with tuberculosis and as well or someone with HIV and get those folks started on medications. And that will then decrease the rate of transmission of HIV as well as tuberculosis in this country. All right. Now moving a little toward the, the personal side of the trip, uh, Dr. Capograco, can you describe to us where you stayed, what you ate, what your, how you got around? Yeah, we, uh, we stayed with a local businessman whose name is Tifa. And he's sort of like a, a kind of a prominent figure in that community. He's a role model. He's internationally educated and in animal husbandry and, and, uh, and farming. So he teaches a lot of the other local uh, people in that community and farmers um, farming and, and sustainable farming. Um, so we stayed on his uh, property. Uh, he had a few different buildings, which were basically cinder block buildings with corrugated steel roofs, uh, and a number. And in one of the buildings, there was a number of bedrooms where uh, usually it was two people per bedroom. Uh, stayed on a little mat and and bed with a mosquito net, uh, and then he's actually the one that uh, arranged for the piping from the aquifer. To, so he has clean water at his house and and to the riverbed for the rest of the vigil, uh, villagers. So we stayed with him. Um, he has family and other staff that live there as well, and they provided our three meals a day um, and drinks throughout the day. And uh, it was it was actually very nice to spend some time with them and see some of the uh, the local people and and all the other villagers in Verets. You know, really had a lot of respect for him. So it, it, we could I could I could tell immediately that that he was doing good work for his local community. Did you get by speaking English, or did you need French or Haitian Creole? Um, most people don't speak English. Tifa did speak a little English, but mostly Creole. Um, one of the other staff members for medical student missions uh, is speaks about six languages, and uh, he was very helpful and really took great care of us. But when we were on our clinic days, uh, we had a number of uh, translators who were probably college-age uh, young, young people who... Uh, Whose job, who, who, the, who the mission paid uh, to be translate, translation services through our clinic days. All right. Why don't you tell me about some of the things uh, that you feel you learned from this trip that you could apply to your work here in uh, Syracuse or elsewhere in the United States? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting because wherever you go, medicine is the same. Uh, and when we're working with 
fewer diagnostic uh, tests and everything is clinical and it kind of gets back to the roots of medicine and uh, you know more than anything uh, just just caring for people that are so appreciative because and they have no other good resources uh, really is heartwarming for me. From a physician perspective, one of the larger issues that's facing a lot of physicians now in the U.S. healthcare system is it's called burnout, where we spend less time with the patient at the bedside, speaking one-on-one as a physician to the patient, and we spend a lot of time documenting things at the computer with this uh, electronic medical record. Um, for a lot of us that just really enjoy the patient interaction, it's refreshing to go to a community such as Verrett's in Haiti where there is a need, where the patients are very appreciative of the care we're providing, where we're able to uh, document the care we've provided, but nothing necessarily as extensive as what's required here in the U.S. healthcare system for both purposes of billing and as well for sort of legal protections. Um, in Haiti, it's uh, providing healthcare on the ground level, physician with patient, one-on-one interactions, and being able to then see that we're helping them directly and then moving on to see the next patient and also provide that care to that next patient coming in to be seen as well. And you expect this to be an ongoing project? This is uh, a continuous project, uh, which is um, quite good for the organization Healthcare Haiti and as well for the people of Verrett's. Um, some of the criticisms of medical missions is that they might go into a community and then sort of um, uh, trample over or uh, interfere with the existing health core or healthcare uh, delivery system. Whereas for us with Healthcore Haiti, we actually work with the existing health care delivery system. We do have a consistency as far as how frequently we go to Haiti. So we go there anywhere from three to four times per year. So there's a consistency that we've you know entrenched ourselves uh, into the community. And we've been going uh, to Haiti with this organization since 2010. So it's been already now eight years with well over 40 trips under our belt with the anticipation that we're going to continue with these efforts. Um, myself, this had been my third trip to Haiti. My first trip bringing in residents from SUNY Upstate's emergency medicine program. The next trip, which will be in the late May, early June of 2019, I also will intend to bring some students of the Lemoyne Physician Assistant Program. So not only am I a professor here at SUNY Upstate with the medical school, I'm also considered adjunct professor with the Physician Assistant Program at Lemoyne. And I've been working with their administration to uh, create sort of a curriculum for those students to have an elective in this um, a type of uh, international medicine experience. And we'll be bringing hopefully about eight students from Lemoyne PA program next year, and as well, our department at the uh, SUNY Upstate Emergency Medicine Department is committed to sending the emergency medicine residents uh, as part of their elective experience uh, to Haiti as part of this ongoing effort. All right. Well, thank you both for sharing your insights on your trip to Haiti and medical care there. My guests have been Drs. Brian Kloss and Joseph Capagreco from the Department of Emergency Medicine at Upstate. I'm Jim Howe for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, what you need to know about Lyme disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The abundance of deer ticks throughout central New York fuels the fear of Lyme disease. With us today is Dr. Christopher Polino, an assistant professor of medicine specializing in infectious disease and the director of clinical research at Upstate's Center for Global Health and Translational Science. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for Should having be. me. Now, prevention is the best strategy, I assume. Insect repellents, removing ticks proper, prop, promptly, reducing tick habitats. But despite our prevention efforts, um, it's really not that unusual to find a tick after visiting a park or even playing in the backyard. So if someone finds a tick on themselves or their child, what should they do? So, uh, you know, some some places don't advocate saving the ticks. I, I prefer to see the tick to make sure that it is a deer tick. Um, so save it in a plastic bag? Save or? it in a plastic bag, some kind of a container where obviously it won't escape and potentially put anybody in the household at risk. Um, but, you know, here at Upstate, um, you know, the infectious disease providers um, can recognize the adult ticks. And if there's a question, we have entomology colleagues who we could easily either bring the, the tick to or send a picture of the tick and, and they can help identify it. And that way it kind of determines whether or not you're at risk for Lyme disease because the Ixodes scapularis deer tick is really the only one that's going to uh, carry the disease um, as opposed to some of the uh, other ticks that you could see in the area. Interesting. So that would be helpful it to would be. remove it and save it. Okay. Um, now, Lyme disease is not something that develops overnight. I mean, if you get bitten or remove a tick one day, you're not going to wake up with the bullseye rash the next morning, right? Right. Yeah. Typically, um, if you get a if you get a tick bite, you may get a local reaction to the tick bite itself, to the salivary proteins and whatnot, and you can get a little lesion at the bite with a little surrounding redness. The bullseye rash is more distinct. It's usually five centimeters or bigger uh, in diameter. And it usually occurs about a week to two, maybe three weeks after the initial bite. Um, it can be accompanied by kind of acute symptoms uh, where you have the early localized Lyme disease where it's at the site. It may have some fevers, chills, flu-like symptoms. Um, people have described it to me as, as feeling like you have the flu without any of the respiratory symptoms. Um, oh. And then um, after you get the, those kind of generalized symptoms, the aches and the pains and whatnot, um, there are other syndromes that you can develop. There's uh, early disseminated Lyme, which um, can present with uh, heart findings where you can get the electrical electrical activity of the heart can be dis, um, disorganized and you can go into heart block and that has its own symptoms, typically fatigue, uh, potentially chest pain. Um, and then there's other uh, aspects as well, uh, similar uh, to uh, uh, things like uh, uh, meningitis. So there's a Lyme meningitis that you can get with bad headaches. You can get Bell's palsy, uh, which half the face is basically paralyzed. Um, and then there's also the, uh, the, uh, the arthritis that can occur as well as you kind of get later in, into the uh, development of the, the disease itself. Are these like complications of Lyme or are they more severe cases of Lyme or? Yeah, I mean, everybody's different. Um, and, and depending on whether or not you receive treatment early enough, um, you could develop some of these more complicated cases. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a question of whether or not the, uh, the spirochete, which is the organism that causes Lyme, actually infects these tissues or if it's more of an immune response. Um, you know, there's some, some differing opinions out there about that. So, um, it, it is essentially a spectrum of complications, like you could see with really any any type of infection. 
So if you end up with this um, flu feeling without the respiratory and you remember having a tick encounter, Mm -hmm. um, you end up going to your primary care doctor, I assume. Mm -hmm. How does he or she diagnose that it's Lyme? So there's a couple things. So, you know, going back to finding the tick, if you find a tick on you and you bring it in and it's, it's obviously engorged with blood, there is a prophylactic uh, regimen uh, where you can take an antibiotic for a single uh, dose. And it has been shown in a very small study to prevent the development of Lyme disease. Now, if it's beyond that time frame and you have the bullseye rash and, you know, potentially the other symptoms, you know, in an endemic area such as ours and, and the rest of the Northeast, if you see that bullseye rash in the summertime, early, uh, late spring or uh, early fall where the ticks are still active, that in and of itself is diagnostic. It uh, is. Yeah. If you see a bullseye rash in this area and you have any of the other symptoms, yeah, I would call that Lyme disease and I would treat you as, as such. Um, as far as some of the other symptoms, um, you know, if somebody comes in with bad headache, uh, the Bell's palsy that I had mentioned with uh, the facial asymmetry, um, the cardiac complications, generally uh, you take those clinical syndromes and you pair it with a serologic test where you actually measure antibodies to Lyme disease. And there's a screening test and a confirmatory test. Um, now, there are some drawbacks to this test. Um, they're basically, um, they require your body to have an, a functioning immune system. So, you know, one of the drawbacks and one of the criticisms that many have with the diagnostics of Lyme is, you know, it may not work for everybody. Um, so the sensitivity may not be as good as, uh, as one would hope. There are uh, a couple other tests out there. Um, there's a C6 antigen test, which is a uh, you know, a newer FDA-approved test. It's not currently in the guidelines, although um, I'm sure they'll add that to the guidelines um, in the next year when they come out. And then there's also um, other more molecular tests like PCR, where you can actually look and try to find DNA of the Lyme disease. Not really a great test since the organism isn't usually abundant in the bloodstream. Really the best place to test with that particular assay would be in um, you know, a joint aspiration where you actually stick a needle in an affected joint and you, you test for the DNA there. Um, not everyone gets the bullseye rash though, right? Mm-mm, no, uh, many people don't. Um, and that's where it really gets difficult because, you know, you may have like a nonspecific flu-like illness. It could have been Lyme. You may not have had the rash and then you don't get treated right away. And, and typically the people who go on and develop more of the chronic symptoms that you hear about are people who don't get diagnosed and treated early on. And unfortunately, about 10 to 20% of Lyme patients do go on to develop these kind of chronic uh, syndromes um, that that can be very debilitating um, and and very disturbing to to the patients that are affected. So if you find a a tick and remove a a tick, it's better to come in and be seen and get treated then Mm -hmm. rather than waiting to see if you develop these symptoms or Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, earlier is always better when it comes to to most diseases uh, and infections in particular. So uh, I would agree. Okay. Well, I've got some more questions, but first, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Christopher Paulino. So once Lyme is diagnosed, how is it treated? So there's a there's a handful of drugs that are uh, are classically used to treat uh, Lyme disease. The most common one is doxycycline. Um, it's, it's a very versatile antibiotic that can be used for a variety of different things. Um, 
you know, when uh, when I was in the military, we used it uh, for malaria prophylaxis for quite a long period of time for people deploying overseas. Um, it's also quite active against uh, various uh, tick-borne illnesses. So not just Lyme disease, but things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anaplasmosis or lichiosis, mm -hmm. other things that we could potentially see. Um, generally, if you have early infection with Lyme disease, you can treat for about a 10 to 14 day period. Um, so if you see a bullseye rash, that should be sufficient. Um, some providers recommend going three weeks. Um, and then for some of the other uh, syndromes, like the, uh, the heart syndrome that I mentioned, the, card mm -hmm. uh, the carditis, or the meningitis, uh, generally we treat for uh, 21 to 28 days. And in, in some of those cases, we'll start with an intravenous drug called ceftriaxone. Um, and, and that uh, also has great activity uh, against Lyme. And, and typically does, uh, does the trick in terms of treating the patient. Again, some patients will have some of these chronic uh, symptoms that may persist for weeks or months afterwards. Um, where are we with a vaccine? If, if we have so much Lyme around, is, yeah. would that be better to be able to vaccinate people? So, so yeah, there, so a little bit of history. So there, there was a vaccine that was FDA approved. Uh, going back several years that had been withdrawn from the market. Um, there was some question of whether or not it was causing some of the uh, joint symptoms and um, uh, other symptoms of Lyme disease. Uh, and uh, it was a fairly good vaccine, but because of the, uh, because of the criticism of it, it, it did get pulled. Um, because we, we do have this massive influx of uh, ticks and, and subsequent tick-borne illnesses, um, we've uh, we've seen more interest in developing a vaccine, and there is a vaccine that's in development uh, from a European country, country that's actually going to be uh, tested here in the United States in addition to other places. So hopefully it's coming. Hopefully. Okay. Now what happens if someone goes untreated, if they ignore the symptoms? and? and... So, yeah, so, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the concerning things is the, the cardiac uh, manifestations. Um, you know, you can go into complete heart block, um, and, and that can have its own consequences uh, and, uh, and potentially be uh, uh, a fatal complication. Um, what most people end up having is these chronic joint symptoms and chronic just feeling fatigued, uh, headaches. Um, people describe a memory fog uh, where they just can't think clearly. Um, and this can happen either without treatment or with treatment. Um, there's, there's really two camps that are looking at Lyme disease. They're are people who um, consider this a post-Lyme disease syndrome, uh, where it's uh, an acute infection with potential damage to the nerves during the infection, and then a potential autoimmune or immunologic phenomenon that causes inflammation chronically. Hmm. And these symptoms, as I said, can go on for weeks, months, and sometimes in some cases, years. Um, and then there's the, the other camp um, that thinks this is a chronic infection, where there's uh, persistent uh, bacteria causing these symptoms. Um, although you know most of the most of the, the studies that have looked at randomized control trials um, don't really support that that second um, that second side. But there are two two groups that um, that that feel that there's different things that need to be done. And there's uh, patients, not you said I think ten to twenty percent that mm -hmm. may end up having chronic symptoms. So right. what do they do? Yeah, so it's really difficult. Um, you know, there's there's really no great therapies for these uh, chronic symptoms, and it's it's mostly supportive as of right now. Um, you know, some people um, who believe this is a chronic infection advocate for a chronic course of antibiotics. 
Again, uh, the data doesn't really support that. Um, and then there's also a lot of kind of supplemental uh, therapies, um, supplements that are used um, by some providers. And they can be quite expensive. Um, you know, I've heard some patients, you know, say that they pay 500 to $1,000 a month just to pay for these. Um, you know, my thought is, you know, we don't really have good data to support this. Um, and it would be best if we could do a randomized control trial looking at patients uh, who receive these supplements, who, you know, you know, who, uh, who receive the supplements compared to people who don't and see if to they see actually what, work. They work. Yeah. And if you can get some grants that can support the research, you know, people wouldn't have to pay out of pocket. The, the cost of the drugs and the supplements would be, you know, out of the grant um, and people wouldn't have to, you know, remortgage their houses in some instances to yeah. pay for the therapy. Well, well, that's interesting. Thank you for taking the time to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Christopher Paulino, an infectious disease specialist at Upstate, who also directs clinical research at Upstate's Center for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Medicine and the natural world can be allies in healing. Lisa Roulard shows us how, in her beautiful meditation entitled, Silk Screws, for the scientists, for the silkworms. Slotted and threaded and glowing apple green, these screws were built of silkworm cocoon, the lustrous proteins folded by medical engineers, delicate maneuvering with something so fine they should be honored for the light in their thinking. But before cocoons, the silkworms fed day after day on hand-picked mulberry leaves, their constant munching the sound of heavy rain. Silence then when it's time to spin. Snug in their white puffs, the silkworms begin to grow up. Like that, pupae, the clean silk waits. Life's work as continuous strand. They are killed then with the hot hiss of steam. No matter that if they lived, they'd be flightless. No matter they'd emerge into permanent dark. Domesticated silk moths are blind. The screws are designed like hope to fasten where we're deeply broken, to last as long as needed. Someday, when they're placed in the bones of children's faces, those that are broken but will go on growing, may each anchor be a nightlight perpetually lit, each child alive with the wing pulse of blood, with their own constellation of green silk stars, a great looking upward to carry within. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss medical ethics with a pair of experts from Upstate. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.